0: The concept of FlightBridgeEd was sparked when a growing need and a dream united into an idea. That idea grew into a passion, and from passion came a global community of providers and students, joining in the revolution of pre-hospital, critical care, and emergency medicine education. Now, from around the world, we are calling our community together. We proudly announce the FlightBridgeEd Air and Surface Transport Symposium in Wilmington, North Carolina, on June 11th and 12th, 2024, with opening keynote, Scott Weingart. That's right, mister Mcrit himself. World-class speakers, vendors, and of course, the FlightBridgeEd team will be there. Go to our website now to register for FAST24. Join the revolution. The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer. Hey,
1: everybody, Eric back with you. Today I'm going to do a Nightmare Series case, and I'm not going to give the initial information at this point. I think this is a very interesting case, something I came across, uh, something that kind of alarmed me, and uh, it's a little bit close to home. And so I thought it would be a great. Podcast, a lot of great teaching points. We're going to dive into this. We're going to go through the initial presentation and then go through a differential diagnosis um, and look at multiple differential diagnoses. And then we'll go through and we'll kind of dissect different aspects. Um, We are going to hit on different lab values, kind of continue from our previous podcast over the last month and uh, look at white blood cell count, the different aspects of white blood cell count, Look at things call, uh, like troponin and C-reactive protein and procalcitonin and all those great things and try to tie those things into this case. All right, let's get started. You have a 30-something-year-old male patient. He has a sudden onset of tachycardia. He's at home. Uh, he's he's healthy. Uh, no medical history. Has no other symptoms other than that. But the heart rate is about 170 to 180. And he says that shortly after this heart rate increases to this rate, he starts having severe nausea and vomiting. Um, the vomiting was so profound, he vomited about 30 times. And it got so bad that he actually had a stinkable episode and bailed himself down. Uh, his family called 911. Uh, his dad is actually a paramedic and they actually arrived at the same time. And at this point, he's awake, uh, complaining of burning chest pain in his uh, upper chest and associated shortness of breath. Um, EMS ar- arrives. Heart rate is now uh, between 90 and 180, so it's going back and forth, uh, narrow complex. Based on my conversations with this, with this patient um, and family, he had this feeling of impending doom. He had this feeling of, of that he was going to die. He had severe anxiety. EMS gave him 5 milligrams of morphine for the, the discomfort in his chest, gave him 5 of Valium as well, and they actually did this two times. so They gave him a total of 10 of morphine, 10 of Valium. They did give him one liter of normal saline during the transport. Uh, they started with standard oxygenation, non-rebreather, Uh, But he wasn't handling the non rebreather He just felt so short of breath. He had so much anxiety, so they ended up starting some CPAP on him, um, which was not helping as well. He arrives at the hospital. And so once he arrives at the hospital, they end up giving him another liter of normal saline throughout the first 30 minutes. Uh, They try to get him on some BiPAP. And after the second liter had gone in, the... Uh patient states that he started having some uh, pink, frothy sputum. He started coughing up bl- uh, that, that sputum, and it was approximately 800 mils total that he had coughed up. At this point, uh, 12 lead is negative. Uh, the BiPAP is being ineffective, um, and he basically requests to be intubated. He feels like he's going to die. He requests to be intubated, and so he is intubated, RSI'd successfully, uh, and then taken to the cath lab. Uh, they took him to the cath lab and they um, they identified prior to that that he had a rapid decline in, advanced, in hemodynamics and they decided to place a bloom pump. They had a few little complications placing the bloom pump, but they did place that bloom pump successfully, but he was not doing very well in that bloom pump. So very, very unstable, very unstable as far as his augmentation pressures um, and just not doing well at all. So let's talk about differential. This is a a young patient. And to have such a rapid decline, to have all these secondary symptoms, um, it's really easy to automatically think cardiac, cardiac, cardiac. I mean, he's complaining of the burning chest pain. He's got associated shortness of breath. He's got the nausea and vomiting. I mean, all those things kind of lead up to exactly that. So obviously they thought the same thing. The 12 lead was, was negative, so they were attempting to rule out the MI. If you remember the past case we did on my good buddy, John Malcolmson, flight paramedic in, uh, for Air Methods, EMS director for um, a large EMS county-run agency in uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, he actually suffered from a debaki one tear. So remember, a one tear a lot of times will manifest with those initial rapid um, decompensation signs and symptoms. Uh, obviously, this patient doesn't have the tearing pain in his back, but we need to utilize good differential diagnosis and, and rule those things out. And so remember, any type of thoracic aneurysm, you're going to have unequal blood pressures. Always make sure you have equal pulses in your upper extremities. Make sure you have equal pulses in your, in your lower extremities. Always check for your pedal pulses and make sure those are equal. Make sure your blood pressures are equal. Um, and attempt to get some type of history. Remember, debauchy one tears, 40% of all debauchy one tears or thoracic aneurysms are debauchy one tears, affecting that whole ascending aorta. And a lot of times these patients will have a long-standing history of uncontrolled hypertension. Um, these patients can be very young just like this. So MI, even though we don't have a positive 12 liter at this point, we can't rule that out. With this patient having pulmonary edema, um, was this induced based on the volume, right? Two liters, two liters isn't a lot of volume, but two liters is a lot of volume if you have a patient with a left ventricular dysfunction of some sort. So we have to always kind of consider, is this a an inferior wall MI where you have a 50% increase in or probability of having that right ventricular infarction, right? They need volume. They need preload. Obviously, the 12 lead was negative, but they gave volume for whatever reason. I don't have actual blood pressures, but I know at that point the patient was hypertensive. Another cause of cardiac-related pulmonary edema is going to be a mitral valve papillary muscle rupture, and that's based most often on an anterior wall MI. So, we know anterior wall MIs are, you know, that high left main occlusion, most often that widow maker, and that papillary muscle uh, is going to control that mitral valve. That mitral valve is the high pressure valve. It has to be able to withstand a lot of pressure. And so, we see these patients that will have this rapid decline, flash pulmonary edema when they do have an infarcted papillary muscle uh, that, that basically blows out that mitral valve. Another differential that comes to mind for this patient would be apical ballooning syndrome. We did a podcast on this. This is called Takasobo's Apical Ballooning Syndrome or ballooning syndrome. And this is a fairly new presentation. It was only identified by a Japanese doctor in the uh, late 90s. But this is most often 80% seen in the female population. And it's usually associated with stress response and anxiety of some sort, a death of a loved one, and it's based on just a huge surge in catecholamines. Now, the reason why 80% of females have this phenomenon over males is males have a larger uh, ability to, to handle the surge of catecholamines because of the increased muscle mass. But apical wounding syndrome does happen in males, and again, most often associated with some type of stress response. Now, if we think back to his initial presentation, the severe nausea and vomiting, right, and the tachycardia. So he went into a, probably an SVT, 170s, 180s, and then if you remember, he was going from 90 to 180, so that's paroxysmal. So he's moving in and out of probable SVT. When we think about that aspect, that's going to cause a huge surge. So apical ballooning syndrome is definitely something to kind of consider, And we know apical ballooning syndrome is going to be a very severe thing if it's profound enough. Obviously, he already has pulmonary edema. He has pulmonary edema secondary to either the volume they gave or he probably has some type of left ventricular dysfunction, right? And why would a healthy 30-something-year-old male have such a rapid decline and now have a left ventricular dysfunction issue? What about sepsis? Obviously, he fits all of the clinical signs of sepsis. Um, definitely falls into that Q sofa for pre hospital, having all his symptoms. And so I think it would be very easy to say this patient is septic. What about pericarditis? Pericarditis, what are some things that we could identify or ask? Has this patient recently been ill? Has he had an upper respiratory infection? Has somebody in his family had an upper respiratory infection or strep? Now, this patient did have an upper respiratory infection about 30 days prior. um, Was very mild as far as just a normal cold. But his daughter did have strep uh, a few weeks before. And so we know with pericarditis, you're going to have global ST elevation in, in multiple leads on the twelve lead, not gonna have that classic reciprocal change that you would see in a normal twelve lead where you would see reciprocal changes in your high lateral leads in your inferior leads, right? Specifically AVL and lead three, those two are always gonna show reciprocal when you have either a high lateral wall MI or in contrast, a an inferior wall MI, those two will always be reciprocal. And that's one of those those kind of confirming differentials to, to look at. If you don't have that, that's a a kind of clue that you're you're maybe looking at pericarditis. So obviously his 12 lead is is, is normal. Um, he doesn't have the classic you know feeling of pressure in his chest where it's relieved when he leans forward. Um, so you know again something to think about, but he doesn't really fit that criteria. And then the last one is kind of that silent killer, and the more and more I've read on this, the more and more um, I found this foundation, and uh, this foundation had all these survival stories, some of them with with family members talking about their loved ones that that they didn't make it, that died, and it's myocarditis, and myocarditis is is a really scary disease. I mean, it really has kind of rattled me. Um, reading all these different cases because it's such a silent killer. It just sneaks up on you. And most often, patients are just going to feel kind of like they have the flu. They're just not going to feel right. And all of a sudden, they're going to start having that shortness of breath. They're going to have that feeling of of impending doom, that feeling of maybe burning in their chest or chest pain. And that's exactly what this patient had. So let's kind of talk about this workup and how would you work this up and and what happened when they got him to the hospital well basically after they got him into the cath lab they identified his ejection fraction was five percent or less so basically that's at the point where you have pulseless electrical activity right that's not good that's that's not survivable Um, on day two after they put the balloon pump in as i said before the balloon pump just was not doing what it needed to do Uh, He was not handling the bloom pump, whether it was a timing issue. For whatever reason, he just was not doing well with a bloom pump. His temperature had increased to 104.9, so now he's he's very, very um, hyperthermic. And they made the decision to transfer him to a hospital that can put him on ECMO. So that's where we're at. The patient's transferred. He's placed on ECMO. And um, we'll kind of get to the end of the case here in a little bit. So let's go through the aspects of myocarditis. Things that we we can utilize in our everyday clinical care. And I think it'll be a really good review. Most often, myocarditis is going to be viral in nature. And these are standard viral diseases that we see all the time. Um, a lot of them are related to... Um, our, our kids, pediatrics, and things like that. Obviously, myocarditis can be bacterial. Uh, it can be from chlamydia. It can be fungal in nature. So let's talk about a few of them. Um, the first one is called fifths disease, and this is that parvovirus B19. So we've we've seen fifths disease. Fifths disease is something that we see with, with our kids um, all the time. Um, number two would be that human herpes virus 6. and when I researched this, this is interesting that most of us are infected by the age of about a year old and it lies dormant. It lies dormant in our bone marrow and then it can just kind of come alive. Uh, 20% of infants brought to the ER, I thought this was very interesting, uh, are actually suffering from this herpes virus 6. So, you know, 20% of infants brought to the ER with just an undiagnosed, undifferentiated fever, most often it's a that herpes virus six. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And then the last one viral wise is that Coxsackie virus. And this is that hand, foot and mouth disease. Again, I've got five grandkids and I think they've all had Coxsackie virus. They've all had fist disease, you know, so that's where I start getting kind of nervous. I'm like, geez, man, this is, this is the common, most common reasons why, And when I read on this and studied this, uh, it said that specifically those three, all three of those, that, that patients that have died from myocarditis, those different viruses were found in the myocardium on autopsy. This is actually the leading cause of death of undifferentiated cardiac collapse. So you have a normal young patient that just dies in their sleep. They're finding that more and more people based on autopsy, that that's the reason why they, they die of sudden cardiac disease. It's not cardiac disease, it's myocarditis. So viral is the most common. And then if we get into the bacterial side, so shortly after the patient got uh, to the second facility, they did the ECMO, uh, they identified that the patient had, with that, that high temperature, they identified the patient had pneumonia. So they actually did a bronc. they identified chest X-ray. He had a left-sided pneumonia. And so they did a bronc, and he actually grew staph, he grew strep, and he grew fungal. So he had a staph, strep, and fungal pneumonia. And so they identified that that was probably the likely cause of the myocarditis. So they immediately started him on a very uh, focused antibiotics. So they started him on... Uh, Zyvox, antibiotic called cefepime, and then they started him on Flagyl. So they hit all three of those, and those, all those are very focused uh, antibiotics that, that really hit on tougher strains, maybe bacteria that doesn't respond to just the standard antibiotics, and so these are very, very potent. As far as labs go, uh, his labs were pretty profound. He had a troponin level of 11. So we know a normal troponin is 0.01 nanograms per deciliter, and we know that you know a lot of times troponins can be elevated for other reasons, but um, you know it doesn't always mean that it's a cardiac uh, related MI or or something like that. But obviously this is a a big deal. You have inflammation around the heart that myocarditis, and so a troponin 11 is pretty significant. What about sepsis? Like if we think about sepsis and we think about looking at the different labs and we think about identifying you know is this patient in septic shock now obviously he has a pretty profound pneumonia he has strep he has staph and he has a fungus so what other labs can we do to kind of help us in that initial differential you know imagine if this patient was a patient that you were picking up from a hospital and one of the really cool medications, uh, not medications, but the very cool labs that they're utilizing a lot more now is a lab that's very focused on looking at a bacterial infection, and that's procalcitonin. Procalcitonin is basically a a, a chain of amino acids. So it's, it's made up of 116 amino acids. And a normal procalcitonin level in, an, in a person, in an adult, is less than 0.15 nanograms per deciliter. So a normal healthy person, basically their levels are below that. And they're below that based on just normal detection. So we shouldn't ever see a a, a high procalcitonin. If you do, um, basically there's different levels. So you have mild. A mild increase is going to be between that 0.15 to 2 nanograms per decil- deciliter. And that's going to just focus you in on Maybe a mild bacterial infection, uh, maybe a non-infectious surge response, so a systemic inflammatory response of some sort. Or you may see that in patients that have um, that end-stage renal failure. Where it becomes diagnostic is when it's greater than two nanograms per deciliter. And so at that point, it's very specific for a bacterial sepsis, bacterial pneumonia, meningitis or or peritonitis something like that and so it's really really good and it focuses in on that bacterial inflammatory response or that that surge response when we think back we used to always look at lactate and lactate is still a great marker but we know that lactate is not an indication of infection it's not an indication of tissue hypoxia but it does help us kind of relate and, and identify how sick is this patient. And so a lactate level tells us of, of a stress response. Remember, lactate is a byproduct of glycolysis. And glycolysis, whether you're thinking of aerobic glycolysis or anaerobic glycolysis, your lactate is a byproduct of both. We know that lactate is very important in our uh, processes for fueling our brain and our heart. And so, a lactate doesn't tell us that we have an infection. It just tells us our body's under a stress related event. So, his lactate, they did draw a lactate, and his lactate was 11. Now, we, we have different levels of lactate. And so, when you see a lactate of greater than four, you know, and you're getting up to 11, that's a pretty big stress response. And, you know, anytime you get high like that, you need to start looking at other, other causes, right? Um, there's other reasons why. And one of the ones that really sticks out to me is is a metformin metabolic acidosis. So metformin is that medication for type 2 diabetes. And there are patients that, that just don't respond well. They become very uh, toxic. And that will cause a very high lactate in a metabolic acidosis. All right, another lab is c-reactive protein and c-reactive protein a norm is going to be less than one milligram per liter this is this is kind of one of those labs that's really more non-specific they they check this but it's used for lots of different ways and so a high level of uh, that c-reactive protein marker is an indication of inflammation just an inflammatory response of some sort Uh, It can be high for a lot of reasons. It can be high for just standard infection. It can be high in cancer patients. But it's also used to kind of look at and identify a risk for heart disease. And so somebody that has a C-reactive protein between one and three milligrams per liter, um, they have about an average risk for heart disease. If it's greater than three, they have a pretty severe risk for heart disease. And anything less than one is normal. So... His C-reactive protein was very elevated. It was greater than three. So again, that doesn't mean that he has a high risk for heart disease. It just means that he has a severe inflammatory response. So again, it's very nonspecific to what's going on in in you know in the grand scheme of things. Okay, so we've hit on lactate. We've hit on C-reactive protein. We've hit on procalcitonin. Uh, we've, we've looked at his troponin level. So now let's look at the white blood cell count. You know, we've talked about a lot of labs. We talked about a lot of labs with the podcast with with my wife on on the other day. And we looked at that endocrine case and touched on a lot of those things. And so let's talk about white blood cell count. When we look at the white blood cell count and we identify if they have some type of infectious process, we need to first kind of go through, and there's lots of different aspects to white blood cell count. So We're gonna go through each one of them. We know a white blood cell count has a level between 4,500 and 11,000. Um, and any cell that starts out is called a blast cell. A blast cell is basically uh, make up red blood cells, white blood cells. All the cells, when they're maturing, um, are called blast cells. So a white blood cell, once it's mature, again, 4,500 to 11,000. And when we see white blood cell counts that are less than 4,500, a lot of times that's caused from uh, an immune response. So it can be mono. Um, obviously cancer will cause this autoimmune disorders like lupus um, obviously infection uh, specific medications will also cause this and then high counts you can see that in uh, leukemia you can see that in a stress response you can see that in in tissue damage like burns and then obviously bacterial infections so when we think about white blood cell count there's different kind of aspects to white blood cell count and the majority of white blood cells are made up of neutrophils and neutrophils that's the way our body responds and fights infection. So that's our immune system response, and that makes up 50 to 70% of all of our white blood cells. And when we look at a white blood cell count, you're gonna have different aspects. You're gonna have the neutrophils, you're gonna have bands, you're gonna have basophils, you're gonna have uh, esosinophils, et cetera, and we're gonna go through each one of these. When you see bands on a white blood cell count, bands are essentially immature white blood cells. And so when you see a band level greater than 10%, um, that's not saying that it's specific for a bacterial or an inflammatory response. So it's not specific, but it's better to use absolute white blood cell counts or neutrophils as diagnostic. But what that means is is that there's a good likelihood that for whatever reason, our body is trying to produce white blood cells because it's trying to fight some type of infection or inflammatory response. And that's where you're going to see bands which are, again, those immature white cells. The next white blood cell is a basophil. And basophils are used in the inflammatory response. Think about allergic reaction. And these cells produce immunoglobulin E. And these are those antibodies that fight these inflammatory responses related to an allergic reaction. So again, basophils, think inflammatory response, think allergic reaction. We also have a white blood cell called an eosinophil. And eosinophils are also seen in allergic reactions and more so in the extreme allergic reaction. You also see these elevated in the initial stage of Cushing's disease. And we know that Cushing's disease is caused by too much steroid hormone. Um, so people that are on long standing glucocorticosteroids. Um, maybe bodybuilders that take steroids or, you know, athletes that take steroids, they can actually get Cushing's disease. And you can also see an elevated eosinophil level with maybe a parasitic infection of some sort. The next one is, is a, a lymphocyte. And lymphocyte, these are our, our killer T cells, our killer B cells. So these are those cells that are constantly produced in the uh, bone marrow and they become lymphocytes. So some of these will enter your bloodstream. Most of them are going to move through your lymphatic system, and we know that your lymphatic system is a group of tissues and organs um, like your spleen, like your tonsils, like your lymph nodes, and these protect our body from infection. So about 25% of these new lymphocytes um, remain in the bone marrow. Um, Some of them become B cells, but again, the majority of them, about 75% travel to your thymus and become T cells. And then the last one is going to be your monocytes. And monocytes are produced in the bone marrow. Uh, they then enter the bloodstream, and they account for about 1% to 10%, for very, so a very, very small amount of the circulating uh, leukocytes. So we have a small, small amount, 200 to 600 monocytes per microliter of blood. So again, uh, in comparison to your other uh, white blood cells, specifically if you compare that to your neutrophils, very, very tiny amount. After a few hours, though, they migrate to tissues such as your spleen, liver, lungs. Um, they, they, again, go into your bone marrow where they mature into macrophages, and they're the main scavenger cell for our immune system. So these are those, those macrophages that, that try to eat up this infectious process. So that's basically our overview of labs for this case. I want to kind of give a shout out to this patient, this patient uh, his name is Darren Vandergriff. Uh, he is a flight paramedic um, and a uh, training chief for a captain, I guess, for a department down in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, he is a, a, a great guy and uh, um, somebody I've become to know. I know his dad really well, uh, Larry, and we've done uh, review classes down there. He was extubated on day six. Um, he was moved to a high-frequency nasal cannula to kind of wean him off. And uh, the ECMO was then removed on day seven. Uh, on day seven, they evaluated his ejection fraction, and it had improved to 25%. By day eight, the pneumonia, remember the pneumonia was strep, staph, and fungal had subsided. So at day eight, and then one day prior to discharge, his ejection fraction was determined to be 45%. He had some mild left ventricular hypertrophy, um, but they told him that through medications, rest, and some, you know, exercise that it would basically remodel and go back to normal so this case is a reminder that we never ever know and myocarditis is is one of those sneaky diseases it can come on instantly it's going to come on and it's going to mimic a lot of vague symptoms we saw on our differential that we looked at nmi he presented similar to a debaki one tear he presented similar to a mitral valve papillary muscle rupture, apical ballooning syndrome. I mean, this would be classic apical ballooning syndrome. He definitely seemed like he was septic. You could also then think about pericarditis, but I think most of us are going to not think about myocarditis at all. And when you think about his massive rapid decline, um, shortly after arriving at the hospital, his ejection fraction is 5%. I mean, that's that's really, really bad. And so think about a normal, healthy person with a a rapid decline like that. And I encourage you to research this. There's a great website. It's um, basically a myocarditis foundation, and you can read all these survival stories. This happens to little kids, happens to every age group. Some make it, some don't. And um, we have to really be, I think, ahead of the game when we try to identify this. And I think aeromedical-wise, pre-hospital-wise, when you see patients that present like this, we have to always have this in the back of our mind. And, and again, uh, this, this presentation, seeing him go through this has, uh, definitely made me more cognizant of it. And I just want to give a shout out to him and say, um, on behalf of everybody at FiberJet, we love you. And we're, we're so happy that you're better and you're, you're back to teaching and providing care to our, our patients out there in, in the Atlanta metro area. Uh, we look forward to seeing you when we do our review class in September. Um, I will put a picture of him. uh, Pretty cool. His dad sent a picture of him after they extubated him. I guess the first book he wanted to look at and read was the Ventilator Management book. So that was pretty cool. So we're going to put a picture on the podcast on the website of him um, based on his permission. And uh, if you have any questions, uh, you want any more information on Darren, just let me know. Email me at eric.bauer at flatbridgehead.com. Check out our website. Uh, Fast 18 is is uh, going to be epic i can't stress that enough we have world-class speakers we're going to release those names uh, very very shortly uh venue in nashville tennessee we're going to announce very shortly and uh just very excited about being able to provide this conference and bring these amazing speakers locally to uh, the nashville area very very short drive from many states right five hour drive from man you could probably say 10 states So travel is going to be cheaper than it would be to fly across the country. And that is why we're doing it. Three different pre-cons at this point. We're going to do uh, Dr. Dan Davis's heart training, which is absolutely amazing. It's basically a resuscitation training that's meant for uh, physicians. Then we're bringing it to our pre-hospital providers. Dr. Dan Davis and I have, have been discussing, and we're going to kind of do a strategic partnership. He's coming on board as a medical director, scientific kind of advisor for us, and we're going to start promoting this course and teaching this course. We're also going to do um, have Brandon come in and uh, have him come in and do his EMS POCUS, which is exciting. And we're going to have Dr. Peter Antivi come in, and he's going to do his Antivy Pediatric Provider Course, and so that's really, really exciting. So check it out. Um, register. Uh, we're only going to have a maximum uh, attendance of 300 people. So that's not something we've really discussed. 300 people is it for our first conference. And uh, that's just based on venue size. And, and we just don't want to overview it the first time. So uh, please check that out. Register get your spot. And uh, again, if you have any questions, you want to schedule a review course, a ventilator course, just reach out to me and send me your Flights, uh, your, your cases. Obviously, we change everything up, but uh, if you have any questions, you want to discuss anything, reach out to me. Uh, again, thank you so much, and I will talk to you soon.
0: This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed podcast, leading the way in pre hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.